Sometimes when kids get excited and they're telling you a story, they start talking and using one picture and then they transition to using another picture. Maybe they're talking about something and they say it was like a tree and then they say it was like a lion and then they say it was like a whatever other thing. When we come to Psalm 18, we get a little bit of that sense, not because David was speaking as a child, but simply because he switches and uses a variety of different pictures to describe God as the one who delivers us. And so as we begin through the psalm, I'm just going to start by reading through it. It's a long psalm, but I think it's helpful to read through it to get a a picture of what's going on, and then we'll come back and look at some of the sections, all of the sections, some in more detail than others. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me and the torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into my ears, into his ears. Then the earth shook and quaked and the foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken because he was angry. Smoke went up from out of his nostrils, and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also, and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew, and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered His voice, hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out His arrows and scattered them, and lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. Then the channels of water appeared, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high, He took me, He drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who had hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth also into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his ordinances were before me, and I did not put away his statutes from me. I was also blameless with him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his eyes. With the kind you show yourself kind, with the blameless you show yourself blameless, with the pure you show yourself pure, and with the crooked you show yourself astute. For you save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. For you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. For by you I can run upon a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord, and who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength and makes my way blameless. He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon high places. He trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've also given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand upholds me. And your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped. I pursued my enemies and overtook them, and I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so that they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For you have girded me with strength for battle. You have subdued under me those who rose up against me. 
You have also made my enemies turn their backs to me, and I destroyed those who hated me. They cried for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them fine as the dust before the wind. I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations. A people whom I have not known serve me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me up above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord, and I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. So, as you look over this particular psalm, it has much in common with various songs that we see, uh, uh, songs of thanksgiving for God's help. Uh, for example, uh, when the Israelites were, are delivered from Pharaoh's army by the Red Sea. Uh, Moses actually has another one that he does as well. Uh, there's one in Habakkuk chapter 3, a similar statement of God's deliverance. There's two or three others. I have them written down on another piece of paper that I don't seem to have with me. But there are a number of these examples of songs praising God for his deliverance throughout the Old Testament. This particular one has, is interesting and somewhat unique in the Bible in that if you turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 22, you will see from verses 2 to 51, basically the same song. And the heading of the song is found in 2 Samuel 22 and verse 1. And David spoke the words of this song to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So, the question is, did David compose this early on in his life? Um, if you look at the immediate context before, at least the way that it's listed out, you have the revenge of the Gibeonites um, and David's treatment of Mephibosheth as he comes to power. You see the opposition of Abishai. You see uh, various others who are for or against David. And then immediately after this, you see these are the last words of David. And so certainly there is um, uh, a measure of, what would be the right word? There's some question as to the exact chronology of how all these things fit together. The people who look at the placement just before it says David's last song in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel are hesitant to see this psalm at the end of David's life because how could he speak confidently before God about words about rewarding me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands? Because you look at David's life and God describes him as a man of bloodshed and that's why he doesn't get to build the temple. You look at his behavior toward Bathsheba, Uriah, and so forth and you question whether he could 
say in good conscience the cleanness of his hands. And so we don't know exactly when David composed this particular psalm. There's another question, which is the... Um, I'm not going to highlight them for you necessarily, but there are some differences between what we see in Psalm 18 and what we see in 2 Samuel 22, but those tend to be more of academic interest. If you come at the Bible with the understanding that it's inspired, then you're not looking to see which text came first and which contradicted the other one. You're trying to understand this one was uh, given to be part of the songbook of Israel, and the other one is it set in its historical context. And so uh, trying to say which one of these two came first, uh, why were there slight differences between the two of them, is I think of less importance than looking at what they specifically say. And so as we look at what they specifically say, one of the things that I was struck by is the section in the middle where it says in verses 7 through 15, the earth shook and quaked, the foundations of the mountains were trembling, and, and all of this language that seems to be consistent with what we see in sort of an end times kind of wrath. And yet the rest of the psalm seems to be something that clearly could be spoken simply of David about himself. And so how are we to understand that? And then on top of that, there are people who take this psalm as messianic, as having reference to Christ. Uh, certainly Paul does that in some measure because he quotes verse 49 in Romans 15. And the author of Hebrews, some would say, quotes verse 2 in his book. And as we see these uh, quotations in the New Testament, they don't go into as much detail, certainly, as Peter when he uh, quotes um, Psalm 2 or Psalm 110. And so it's not as clear of a connection to Christ. And yet, some of this language here certainly seems like it doesn't quite fit David. But, before we jump to the New Testament and say, what does that have to say and help us understand this psalm, I think we should look at this psalm in its original context, which is, here is someone, specifically David, who is saying, God is my strength. You are my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call on the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. This is an expression of his relationship with God. He's confident in God. God is his help. God is his refuge. And this idea of the rock is picked up several times in the psalm. We see it in verse 2. We see it in verse 31, who is a rock except our God. We see it in verse 46, the Lord lives and blessed be the rock. And there's certainly a degree to which the idea of rescue and, and those sorts of things is is connected with the idea of the rock, but we tend to think of a rock as being a more passive thing, like a rock stays in one place, and you build a house on it, or you build a fortress on it. And yet, in this psalm, you have a rock who is also a mighty warrior stepping down from his temple in heaven to deliver his people. And, and so there's these, this mixing of metaphors, and yet it gives us a complete picture of what God does we see the difficulty in which the psalmist finds himself in verses 4 through 6. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In four different phrases, he says, essentially, I'm about to die. I need help. And so where does he turn? 
he calls upon the Lord. And it's interesting that it says that he heard my voice out of his temple, and there's some dispute whether this is the temple on earth or whether this is the heavenly temple. If we do take this as something genuinely from David, there was not a temple other than the tabernacle in existence in David's time when he would have written this psalm. And so he's probably referring to God in his holy dwelling place in heaven is hearing David's cry. And then we have all of these descriptions of, of uh, God in his wrath coming down to deliver his people. If you notice, uh, there's a several times, for example, in verse 8, coals were kindled by it. Uh, verse 13, hailstones and coals of fire. Also verse 12, hailstones and coals of fire. So we have this imagery of fire. We have starting out in verses 7, uh, the idea of an earthquake. And possibly verse 15 as well. Channels of water appeared and the foundations of the world were laid bare. We also have this idea of the heavens being bent to his will. Um, uh, in verse 9, he bowed the heavens. Verse 13, he thundered in the heavens. You have this imagery of darkness. He made darkness his hiding place, darkness of waters, thick clouds of the sky. And brightness before him passed into his thick clouds. Uh, arrows scatter them and lightning flashes. And so we have all these imagery of fire, of light, of darkness, of earthquakes, of disruption, of water, all of these things. And there's just this picture of upheaval. Why? Because God is powerful and because God is mighty and because God has stirred himself up to deliver the one who has called on him. And then we come to the actual deliverance in verses 16 through 19. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. It's as though he was drowning. He delivered me from my strong enemy. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, which would be referring back to verses 4 and 5. But the Lord was my stay. Uh, you have this idea that he's being bound by cords of death and yet he has this security. It's like you're, you're drowning. It's almost like um, Jonah's imagery that he'll use later. The seaweed was wrapped around my head so that I was sinking down in the deep. And it's like God reached down his hand and pulled me up out of the water. He brought me forth into a broad place. And what's the significance of a broad place? If we come from the New Testament, we think broad is the way that leads to destruction, but that's not really probably what the idea would be here. It would be more the idea of you know, Abraham and Lot. They needed a place to spread out, to feed their sheep, and those sorts of things. David certainly would have been familiar with that imagery, being a shepherd. And then verse 19 sort of introduces the next section where it says, He, he rescued me because he delighted in me. And then we have this extended discussion, um, starting in verse 20, of why does God hear the prayer that's uttered in verse 3 and verse 6. Why does he come down with such force and fury and deliverance, which is carried out in verses 16 through 19? Verse 20 and verse 24 are very similar. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he has recompensed me. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands and his eyes. And so we have so almost a mirror image of the, of the words there. Why does God rescue the one who calls out? Because 
He's clean in God's sight. What does that look like? Verse 21. I have kept God's ways. I have not wickedly departed from my God. Why? Because I know His truth. Verse 22, and I follow it. And then verse 23, there's nothing to be, that I could be accused of. I kept myself from iniquity. This is where this tension comes in. If David composed this toward the end of his life, how could he say such things? There's two explanations, at least. One would be that he actually composed it earlier on in his life. And if the one in 2 Samuel 22 is something that he sings again toward the end of his life, then he's looking back at his life and he's saying, I know this is not true in and of myself, and yet with God's help, I can say these things, so to speak, with a straight face. Because... Although he sinned, he was a man after God's own heart. If that is the way to understand it, that should give us hope. Because we sin, we fail, and yet God has the power to cleanse and purify us. It doesn't undo the sin. It doesn't undo the fact that there are people that are going to look at our lives and have the same question that we have when we look at a passage like this. But hopefully we have a point at which we can both acknowledge that sin is sin and yet see that God has delivered us from it and say that we are righteous in God's sight, recognizing it's not of ourselves, and say that on the basis of that righteousness that God has produced in us, we can call for His help and He will answer and help us. Verses 25 through 29 sort of lay out the parameters more, not just for the one who cries out, but just generally speaking, what's God's attitude toward people? With the kind, you show yourself kind. The blameless, you show yourself blameless. With the pure, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you show yourself astute. Uh, some of these words are synonyms. Some of these are the same words going down through here. Uh, that last phrase, with the crooked you show yourself astute. It's interesting that it doesn't say with the crooked you show yourself crooked. It's rather with those who are deceitful, you show yourself more clever than they are is kind of the idea I think that we could take away from that. And so how does God respond? I think David is saying to a certain extent God responds according to the behavior of those with whom he is dealing. If we, and, and this is certainly echoed in the New Testament, right? If we don't have an attitude of forgiveness toward other people, it's somewhat hypocritical for us to expect that God will forgive us when we have no mercy and no forgiveness toward other people, right? The parable of the, the servant who was owed a little bit, was forgiven a great deal, owed a little bit, demanded it of the other person, and, and was brought into judgment because of his lack of mercy. We see furthermore development of what we see in verses 25 and 26. In verse 27... This contrast that we see all throughout the Old Testament. You save the afflicted, the humble, those in need, but those who are proud, haughty, you abase. Haughty eyes is simply something that stands for the entirety of the person. It's not just that their eyes have a proud look, but their whole being is full of pride. For you light my lamp, the Lord my God illumines my darkness. Again, this imagery of light versus darkness is seen throughout the Old Testament. Uh, that God is light, His word is light, that leads us on the path. Uh, when it says run upon a troop, it's not so much like a, a um, athletic exercise. It's more have victory against a, an army, a group of soldiers that he comes upon. 
and then to leap over a wall to overcome obstacles in accomplishing that victory. And then he turns to sort of a mixed description of both God's character and the way that God helps his people. God is blameless. His word is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. So his way is blameless. Note the, con the connection to verse 23. I was blameless. Why is that significant? Because verse 30, God is always blameless. And so God will respond with blamelessness toward those who are blameless. Or rather, God has fellowship between himself who is blameless and those who follow him who are also blameless. And then it says as well in... Um, that he, his word is tried. That's the idea of being tested. It's like if you put... Uh, Braden and I were talking about geology the other day because he was studying a science class. And um, we were talking about gold and how gold is mixed with all sorts of other things. When gold is tried, when it's refined, when it's purified, all the other stuff sort of melts away. With God, it's, there's nothing bad to be burned away. But yet if he's tried, if he's tested, he's shown to be pure. He's shown to be right. And then this idea of God as a shield, I think, parallels this idea of God as a rock and a refuge, which we see certainly in the next verse. And then it not only is God blameless, but verse 32, God makes my way blameless. And so then I think that's the connection back to verses 20 to 24. Even if David repeats this psalm, this song at the end of his life, God is blameless, he makes his people blameless, and so they are blameless. And God has this relationship with them and, and helps them. Not an excuse to sin, but certainly a recognition of God, God's work in transforming His people. When it says, uh, making my feet like hinds feet, setting me upon my high places, that's an idea of security, certainly, right? And not only security, but also strength in verse 34 trains my hands for battle so my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Um, I don't know a great deal about archery, so I don't mean to speak beyond my knowledge, but it seems to me that a bow of bronze would be more difficult to bend than a normal bow. And so he's speaking of the strength that God has given him to accomplish that. Verse 35 has a fascinating phrase at the end of it. Your gentleness makes me great. You enlarge my steps under me. My feet have not slipped. This is in contrast to the way that we see the wicked described in other psalms where they are ready to slip, where they are in danger of their own treachery coming back upon them. So what then takes place after uh, the statement of relationship with God, the description of the, the difficulty that he's in, God arising himself, what God actually does in the moment of deliverance, then sort of looking back at why God would, would deliver, both because of the person who cries out, because of God's own character, and then more description of how God delivers, and then now more description of what the one who is delivered does. I pursued my enemies, overtook them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I shattered them so they were not able to rise. That has parallels to verse 42. I beat them as fine as the dust before the wind, I emptied them out as the mire of the streets. We look at this and we say, how can he say these things? How can he say that I destroyed my enemies? Because we tend to think, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, right? And yet these who were rejecting God, there's this, there's this tension in the Bible that God 
opposes the wicked. We certainly see that in verse 27. You save an afflicted people, but haughty eyes you abase. I have that phrase that people say often, hate the sin, love the sinner. I'm not sure that God distinguishes between the two as comfortably as we would like. What I mean by that is not to say that God doesn't have compassion. God certainly has compassion. It's not to say that we can respond as properly as God does to sinful people who are around us, and yet there are places where God just wipes out nations and destroys specific people because of their wickedness. Think about Pharaoh. Romans 9, without dragging too much of the New Testament into this passage, but just to illustrate the point, Romans 9 says, I raised up Pharaoh so that I might show my glory in him by destroying him, by casting him down. And was there a degree to which Pharaoh was guilty of his own actions and, and stubbornly resisted God? Yes. And yet there's this, this intersection of God's opposition of the wicked. And so when we take all those things together, for God's appointed representative, the king of his covenant people, to say, I destroyed those who opposed me, it's not a personal quest for vengeance. It's rather the only right outcome for God to judge his enemies and for David as his appointed representative to carry out that judgment. And it's interesting that it says in verse 41, they cried for help, but there was none to save even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. And so there are those potentially who think that they should be the ones in a right relationship with God, and yet they were not. They were opposing uh, God's purpose, God's plan. And the result was judgment. Just as an aside, I, just because it's, it's in my mind, because I uh, just looked at it um, with, uh, in the Bible class that I teach. The Jews, Paul specifically, so convinced it wasn't the Bible class, it was this last Sunday. Paul was so convinced that he was right. Verse 41, He could have been one of these that cried out to God for help, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them, because in Gamaliel's words, we'd be found to be fighting against God himself, because we're opposing God's purpose, we're opposing God's plan. God sent the one that he had anointed, and people rejected him, and they thought they were doing the right thing. And the result for most of them, with the exception of a few like Paul and maybe a handful of others, was judgment. We come back to the psalm. You have delivered me from the contentions of the people. You have placed me as head of the nations, a people whom I have not known serve me, as soon as they hear, they obey me. Foreigners submit to me. Foreigners fade away and come trembling out of their fortresses. There's some who would see a correlation here between this section and what takes place in 2 Samuel 8 where it says David defeated the Philistines, David defeated Moab, David defeated Hadadezer, uh, David defeated the Arameans, um, David uh, made peace with Hamath because he didn't want to be defeated. Um, David uh, made war against Aram and Moab and Ammon and the Philistines and Amalek and, and Edom and all of these other places. So 
there's a sense in which I think this was true during David's reign based on 2 Samuel 8. But there's also a sense in which Paul quotes these ideas, specifically in the context of verse 49, with regard to the Gentiles praising God in connection with the salvation that he has provided through Christ. We'll come back to that in a moment. Let's look at the last few verses here. The Lord lives, and blessed be my rock, and exalted be the God of my salvation, the God who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me. And this sort of sums up what's going on in this psalm. God is the rock, but he's not a passive rock just sitting there. Verse 47, he also executes vengeance. This pulls in this idea of the the heavenly warrior from verses 7 through 15. He delivers me from my enemies. Surely you lift me up above those who rise up against me. You rescue me from the violent man. David very well may have been thinking of Saul when he said that. Therefore I will give thanks to you among the nations, O Lord. I will sing praises to your name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and to his descendants forever. And certainly in that, there are echoes of the covenant that God made with David in 2 Samuel 7. Does this have any connection with Christ? That's, I think, an important question for us to answer. Whether you see it as a type, a type would be an Old Testament example that points to a New Testament fulfillment specifically in Christ or something connected with Christ. Whether you see it as a type, as in the sacrificial lambs in the temple, uh, anticipate Christ as the one final sacrificial lamb, that would be a kind of a type, I believe. Whether you see it as a type, or whether you see it as messianic, and sometimes people, when they talk about messianic, they try to draw things back from the New Testament and put them in the Old Testament that aren't already there, and I think we have to be careful of doing that. But at the very least, I think that we can say that there are strong parallels between what's described here and what we see in the life of Christ. For example, the cords of death, Sheol, ungodliness, etc., confronted me in my distress. I called upon the Lord, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does Jesus do the same thing that David apparently did in this psalm? Yes. Is there darkness and judgment associated with the crucifixion? Some would see this as Christ's second coming and that judgment there. Um, There's certainly a lot of this language that seems to mirror what we see in the prophets connected with the end times, but there's also elements of it that have at least some parallels with what took place at Christ's first coming. Does... God deliver David or deliver Christ as he delivered David? Yes. Does God reward Christ even more perfectly for the purity of his life and the completeness of his sacrifice? Yes. Does God give and this sounds strange because there's an element of contradiction here, does God give strength to Christ to have victory over his enemies? Yes. 
And as we come to the end here, is Christ the one who is truly going to uh, fulfill all of the things that David couldn't quite accomplish in terms of the, the breadth of his kingdom spreading out and filling all of the space that was appointed by God and given to the people of Israel? Is Christ going to rule and reign and have victory over the nations? And are they going to praise and exalt God for the salvation that he has provided in the context of David and his descendants forever? Verse 50. Yes. So although I don't think that we can necessarily say 100% that this is a prophecy, I do think that if we miss the parallels between Christ's own experience and the circumstances that David describes here, that we miss some of the significance of how God keeps repeating certain things, themes over and over again as the Bible develops and as the Bible unfolds. So what does all this have to do with us? The God who helped David will help his people. But what are the things that ought to be true? We call out for that help. We live a life that is in no sense of our own merit, but simply as a description of how it is a life that is worthy of that help. And we praise God when that help comes. So, do we call out to God for help? Are we living in a righteous way? And when we receive God's help, do we praise Him for it? Certainly David's own experience was such that he did that. Certainly Christ's experience was such that all of those things are even more true of him than they could ever be of David. And yet, there's a way, a sense in which this also applies to our lives today. And so we have in this psalm a rock who arises to save the anointed. which is not inconsistent with the way that the idea of the rock is used several other places in Scripture, Psalm 62, Matthew 21, some of these other places. God is a rock, but just because God is a rock and a shield and all these things that we think of as fixed defenses, don't miss the fact that God is also one who arises from heaven and bends down to accomplish justice and judgment on behalf of His people. And so there's just a lot more in the psalm that could be said, but we'll, we'll wrap up there for now.